Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. to you all. Today is December 23rd, the day before Christmas Eve. I guess that would be Christmas Eve Eve. If you came here today expecting a Christmas sermon, you're going to leave here sadly disappointed. The Bible does not tell us specifically when Jesus was born. The date of his birth apparently was not important. The very fact that he did live on earth, that he was a human being, is obvious proof that he was born. We just don't know exactly when. In Philippians, the first chapter, starting at verse 15, Paul, while he's writing from a prison in Rome is talking about the fact that there are people out there preaching Christ during his imprisonment. Some, he writes, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. That idea that whether Christ is preached 
to add to his bonds, to make him feel worse, or whether it's done out of sincerity. Either way, Paul said, I rejoice in the fact that Christ is preached, that Christ is announced, that Christ is thought of among the people. And that's kind of where I sit with the whole Christmas thing right now. I kind of like the fact that once a year, the whole world has to celebrate or observe or have it pushed on them (laughs) that there is a day that has the word Christ in it. And even though people may not like that day, or even though they may love that day, or even though they may say it's too commercialized, or even though they don't like all of the flummery that goes with it, they can't avoid the fact that at least one day a year there is a holiday that is referred to the Christ Mass. That I have learned to appreciate. Because whether they're doing it sincerely, whether they're doing it mockingly, I'm just thankful that Christ is preached. I'm just thankful that Christ is named and that people can't ignore the fact that he lived and that the whole world observes that fact. So there was my Christmas sermonette. <laughs> really? A small matter, a smattering of applause? Is that what that was? Today we're going to begin the book of Romans. You can turn there if you're very, very hopeful. Um, We may or may not ever reach the book of Romans. We're going to introduce the book of Romans today. I don't know how many of you have ever read Calvin's Institutes. His four-volume set is heavy reading. Calvin originally was taught in, studied in, the art of communication. And he was a lawyer originally, and so he wrote very clearly, very precisely. Whereas Luther was really known by his force of personality and his preaching, Calvin has always been known for his writing, for his rhetoric, which is what he was most known and studied in. He wrote the first version of what became the Institutes. Trust me, I am introducing the Book of Romans here. He wrote the first version of what became the Institutes really to convince the German king, who was Francis I at the time, that the Reformers were not Anabaptists because the German king had pretty much outlawed Anabaptism at that point or Anabaptists as a group at that point because there had been a rebellion in the city of Munster where the Anabaptists had taken over the city and then believed all kinds of crazy things and in fact they insisted on men having a plurality of wives that was just part of the Anabaptist thing they also believed that God was so for them that the leader of the Anabaptists believed that God had told him to go out and fight the armies of the king with just a small army he believed he was Gideon and his band of 300 and so he rode out the city gates to fight with the army of the king and the army of the king just wiped him out just slaughtered him completely Well, that was known as the Anabaptist Rebellion. And to this very day, you can go to Munster and you can go to the primary church in the middle of Munster and there are still cages hanging from the spires of the church where the bodies of the Anabaptist leaders were left to rot. And you can still go see that and celebrate it in Munster, a fun place to be at Christmas. Um, So the first writing of what became the Institutes was really just a treatise to convince King Francis that the Reformers were not Anabaptist. That first version was written back in 1536. And then as Calvin read through it and started working on it, he decided to develop it, to lengthen it a bit, and to make it into an actual catechism to start teaching the Christian religion to people. And that second edition came out in 1539, and it sort of moved from being a period piece of just convincing the king that they weren't Anabaptist to more of an actual biblical 
catechism to teach people what the essential principles of the Christian religion were all about. But then he decided to develop it more toward the form that we have today, his four-volume set. Now, early systematic theology usually ran along the course of the creeds, the ancient creeds. I grew up on the Apostles' Creed. How many of you know the Apostles' Creed? All that the Apostles' Creed is is a declaration of what it is that we believe. And so it starts with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. So it's just a statement of what it is we believe. As Calvin was developing what now became this four-volume set of what we believe as Christians, as he was developing it, he was thinking that he should follow that creedal formula, which most systematic theologies to this very day do follow. It starts with God. Who is God? What is God about? And God is sovereign. And then it moves on into Christ. And then it moves into pneumatology and the Holy Ghost. And then it moves into all of the stuff that the Bible says about us. Well, as Calvin, and actually this was an argument that Luther and uh, Melanchthon also entered into, they tried to decide whether that creedal formation actually corresponded with how we experientially, existentially learn the Christian faith. And the truth of the matter is, that's not the way we learn it. We don't learn the Christian faith by starting with God the Father Almighty, the sovereign God. That's not where we start as we're learning the Christian faith. The fact is, we learn the faith in a way where we are first exposed to our sinfulness. We first come to the realization that we are sinful, and then God's holiness, by contrast, gives us the desire for a Savior. So Calvin decided that his institutes needed to follow the format that is laid out for us in the book of Romans. Ah, it came back to the book of Romans. I got there. Rather than following Luther's pattern, he followed the pattern that was in the book of Romans. To this day, when we talk about Calvinism, sovereign grace, reformed theology, when we talk about TULIP, the first thing we talk about is total depravity. It starts there. It starts with men are depraved. And the book of Romans starts there. It starts with all men are sinful, Jew and Gentile alike. We're, we're all sinful and depraved. And then Paul goes on to develop the necessity of the Savior and how we are saved. It's actually not until chapter 8, chapter 9, that you start to read about predestination, election, that kind of stuff. Now, when most people think about Calvin... They think that that was his primary thing, predestination. That's the primary thing he wrote about. And it's not really in his development, again, of the institutes of the Christian religion. He starts with man's sinfulness, and he talks about God's glory, and he talks about the necessity of the gospel, and he talks about what Christ did, and then introduces, the same way Paul did, introduces ideas of election and predestination. And that is very telling to me. This past Monday, this is a side note. This past Monday, John Riesinger passed away. You've heard me through the years mention John Riesinger. And so I'm going to quote a quote from John Riesinger for a moment that I think fits into what we're talking about here. John once said, and I wrote it down all those years ago, and I recently posted it on Facebook. I think this quote got more feedback, comments, discussion, argument, disagreement, and agreement than anything I've ever posted on Facebook. So much so that I eventually took it down because it became so contentious. The quote was, which by the way I think is totally accurate, 
The quote is, election is not the gospel. Election is the guarantee of the gospel's effectiveness. Okay, let's think through that for a moment. In the book of Romans, starting with man's depravity, you then get into what Paul identifies as the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel. But God did not send his son to the planet to die, to take on the wrath of God, to go through everything he went through on the chance that maybe somebody would come along and validate his work. Instead, God guaranteed that his son was going to have a people who would come to faith, who would be to his glory through all of eternity. And the way that he guaranteed that was by electing people who would, by grace, come to recognize and understand the things that Christ did. So the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The election that God did was to guarantee that the gospel would be effective. You understand how good that quote is now? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I'm totally with it. I couldn't believe that people would argue with it, but hey, it's Facebook. <laughs> if you just follow the pattern in the book of Romans, you're going to see the same thing. You're going to see the first couple of chapters. Paul says everybody's guilty. Jew, Gentile alike, across the board, Everybody's going to be guilty. In fact, just this past week at men's meeting, we read Romans 11.32. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. So God shut up everybody in disobedience. God declared everybody to be sinful. God holds Absolutely everybody guilty for their sin. And that's the way the book of Romans begins. And then the gospel is presented so that we know how we are saved. That we are saved by the finished work of Christ. And so we are justified by the grace of God. And it's not until we understand the grace of God that saves us that Paul then introduces election and predestination. For those who are justified, for those who have come to faith, he then sort of pulls back the curtain and says, now that wasn't your doing, that was Christ's doing. But that's the sound doctrine, that's the whole teaching that is presented to those who have faith. But if you start in presenting the gospel with predestination and election, it's kind of like starting with the book of Revelation. You don't start there. You start by telling people, you are sinful, you're responsible for your sin, Christ is the answer. That's the way that we present the gospel to people. Once they come to faith in Christ, it's fine to pull back the curtain and say, oh, by the way, that had nothing to do with you. That's all the grace of God. That's the electing grace. That's, that's the predestination. In fact, he wrote down your name in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. You can say that to people who have come to faith because the very fact that they've come to faith in Christ is evidence that God has, in fact, written down their name in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. So even our theology, even the things that we believe, even the way that we present the gospel, even the way that we develop our sound doctrine, all of that is formulated in the book of Romans and has been for 500 better years. Now, you know that for years I have said, when you're reading the Bible, it's important to know who's writing, who they're writing to, and then you can talk about what they're saying. But in order to understand context, you have to understand who's writing and who they're writing to. There are two churches in Rome. There is a group of Jewish believers who are meeting in the house of Aquila and Priscilla. And there are a group of Gentile believers who are meeting primarily in the Palace of the Britons. And as we go through this book, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But just know for the moment that there is a Jewish group and that there is a Gentile group both in Rome. Now, Christianity exists in Rome before Paul got there. 
which is fascinating. I mean, how did Christianity get to Rome before Paul got there? It was always Paul's intention to come to Rome. He's going to say so in the Roman letter. It's my intention to go through Spain and come to you. And he never got there, at least not as a free man. The way that God got him to Rome was that Paul was going up to Jerusalem. He was even stopped by some prophets who said, don't go up to Jerusalem because they're going to bind you and they're going to deliver you over and you're going to be tried and He said, nevertheless, though he knew it, nevertheless, he had to go to Jerusalem. He had to go preach Christ. He knew he was going to be bound. And ultimately, he was bound and so mistreated by the Roman centurions who were arresting him that he appealed all the way to Caesar. This is fascinating again. Only freeborn Roman citizens can appeal all the way to Caesar. So that means that Paul was a freeborn Roman citizen, and he even says so. How did Paul become a freeborn Roman citizen? Well, it turns out that he has a half brother, a fellow named Rufus Pudens. Rufus Pudens Pudentia. And you have to do that when you say his name. You have to, yeah. And he says that he and Rufus share a mother. So apparently this is his half-brother. But Rufus's father is a Roman senator. So that leaves Paul pretty well connected in the Roman government. And being a free man and being able to appeal all the way to Rome, he does finally end up in Rome, but he ends up there a prisoner. But even though he ends up originally in chains, he ends up in a house, under house arrest. And we read that people came and went and came and visited him. And he wrote letters, we know, and he sent letters out. And so he has his ministry from Rome, which is the very center of the socialized world at that time. Everything, good or bad, flows from Rome, according to Tacitus, the Roman historian. And so Paul ends up, by God's good providence, ends up in Rome sending out letters and preaching. And as a consequence, his half-brother Linus is married to a woman named Claudia, who it turns out is the adopted daughter of the Roman emperor Claudius. They're Christians. Her brother is a fellow named Linus. Now, if these names sound familiar... It's because Claudius, Linus, Rufus, Paul says hi to all of them in his letters. These are people in Rome who are Christians who are also very, very connected to the household of Caesar. That's how connected Paul is at this point. So God, in his divine sovereignty, picked somebody who was highly educated in the Jewish religion, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, One who would say that before the law he was blameless. One who studied at the feet of Gamaliel. One who was versed in Hebrew but also very versed in Greek. Who is also very connected to households that are connected to Claudius Caesar. Isn't it remarkable? Mm -hmm. So when you read that Paul ends up in a house, in a private house. Receiving people and writing letters and sending stuff out from Rome, where did he get all that kindness from the Roman government? Well, it's because his family is connected. So God knows intimately what he was doing when he picked Paul, because Paul was perfectly positioned to spread the gospel to the Gentiles and then from Rome out to the rest of the free world. In Acts 18, starting in verse 1, we read a little bit about Priscilla and Aquila. It says, after this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. 
So here are Aquila and Priscilla, tent makers, who actually live in Rome, but they've been tossed out of Rome by Claudius, and so they come to Corinth. It's in Corinth that Paul writes the letter to the Romans. And so he's living with and working with Aquila and Priscilla. But then in Romans 16, we're going to read, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I am grateful, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So greet also the church that is in their house. Okay, now we know where the Jewish church is meeting. They're meeting in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. Okay, so I just said in Romans 16 that we hear about Priscilla and Aquila. We understand that they're intimately connected with Paul. We know that they live in Rome. Then they got thrown out of Rome by Claudius because there were riots in the streets among the believing and unbelieving Jews until Claudius reached the point of saying, okay, all you Jews just get out of here. And so they had to leave Rome for a little while. Then he allowed them to go back, which is why Paul, in writing Romans from Corinth, could say, say hi to Priscilla and Aquila, even though he had been living with them in Corinth. But then he adds, in verse 13 of chapter 16 of Romans, he says, And greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother in mine. And so that has led historians, biblical scholars, commentators, to say that apparently this Rufus Pudens and Paul shared a mother, making them half-brothers. In 2 Timothy 4.21, he's mentioned again. When he writes to Timothy, Paul says, Try to get here before winter. Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, And all the brothers send greetings. So now Paul's writing from Rome, and he says, my half-brother Pudens, his son Linus. Now this fellow Linus becomes the first bishop of Rome, not the first pope, but he becomes the first bishop of Rome, apparently installed as bishop of Rome by Paul himself. So Pudens and Linus and Claudia... And then all the brothers send their greetings. And finally, in Philippians 4.22, we read, All God's people here, Paul again writing from Rome, All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to the household of Caesar. So he had people with him who were of the household of Caesar. Who are those people? Well, we've just read some of the names, Rufus Pudens and Linus and Claudia, and they're all connected to the household of Caesar. So I said all that to say, when Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, he's writing to a pretty vast audience. He's writing to Gentiles, and then he's writing to Jewish believers who are living or who are meeting in the household that belongs to Priscilla and Aquila. And so throughout this letter, you're going to have to know which of those two groups Paul is writing to in order to really understand it. Now, again, in men's group, we've been battling through that, especially as we got into chapter 9, 10, and 11. We had to really be careful about, okay, now who is Paul writing to? Is he writing to the Gentiles? Because he says to the Gentiles, don't boast against the Jews. Or is he writing to the Jews when he's talking about their continued favor from God because the promises of God are without repentance, without turning away from? So as we go through the book of Romans, we're going to have to be careful to identify who he's talking to. I think I've pretty much said what I came here to say to get us into the book of Romans. We know who he's writing to. We know the occasion of the writing, and we know that he was in Corinth. And we know that the book of Romans, more than just about any other book in the New Testament, is going to really solidify our faith for us, which is why I'm so happy after 20 years to be back teaching the book of Romans again. Because this is Paul's grand treatise on justification. This is his letter to answer the question, how can sinful men be justified with God? And that's really the theme of the whole thing. 
How is it that sinful men are going to stand before God and not fry? And the answer is always Christ. It's always Christ. Christ did it. But then the natural question is going to come up because he's writing to a Jewish audience. The natural question is going to come up, but what about Israel? God made all these promises to Israel. The prophets have all talked about a future for Israel. So that's what chapter 9, 10, and 11 are all about. Paul responding to the question, but what about those promises made to Israel? Now, there are commentaries out there that just sort of skip chapters 9, 10, and 11. Just jump right over them because those are difficult chapters. But if we know our Old Testament, which I hope by now we do, if we know our Old Testament and we know the prophets and we know the things that have been predicted for Israel, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are not difficult. Paul just simply reaffirms the things that have already been written. So the whole book, beginning to end, is just chock full of great theology and even has an eschatological bent to it. And by the time we get to the end of it, when I am about 87, (laughs) when we get to the end of this book, I hope that you're going to come away with a fully-orbed theology because Paul is really writing a very fully-orbed theology, which is why it makes sense that when Calvin wanted to write his compendium, he made sure to follow that pattern. Okay, I think we're there. Starting right at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now let me mention to you that verses 1 through 7 in most translations make up one very long sentence. This is one of Paul's sort of run-on sentences. So we're going to break it down piece by piece, word by word here. I have made a point of not going back and listening to my introduction to the book of Romans 20 years ago. When I did the book of Romans 20 years ago, I was very influenced by Douglas Moo's commentary on the book of Romans. I'm going to try this time to never go back and listen to what I said. Because when it's all finished, I hope that the exact same truth comes out without me having to go back and listen to what I said and then repeat what I said. I don't want to just repeat what I said. I want to repeat what the Bible says. And I'll bet we end up in the same place. Paul. Doulos. A slave. The NASB says, a bond servant of Christ Jesus. How did Paul become a bond servant of Jesus Christ? Now remember what he's been through. Remember the times that he's been stoned and left for dead outside the walls of Lister. Remember the shipwrecks. Remember the people that have thrown him out of the temple. Remember what he's been through, and yet he endured all of that because he'd been given a commission to go and preach Jesus Christ, and he was going to do that no matter what. No matter the pain, no matter the trouble. He hasn't even been to Rome yet. As he's writing this letter, he hasn't been put in bonds. He hasn't been dragged into a hole. He knows none of that yet. And yet he's been through a tremendous amount of difficulty. And he puts up with all of it because he is slave to Christ Jesus. This is one of the great ironies of Pauline theology. Paul had been under the law which is why I mentioned earlier that he said before the law he was blameless. He had been under the law, and he had to perform everything the law said to do. He didn't have an option. He had to do the law. And then Christ comes. Christ says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He's talking about freedom to those who are under the law. And he's freeing them from the strictures of Moses. And so, sure enough, Paul is now free, free, free indeed, free from the law, free to know that there's justification by faith, free, so free, in fact, that he considers himself a slave because he is free in Christ, free from the law, 
free from anything that would condemn him. It's Paul in this letter who's going to write, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? I mean, free as can be. You can't even throw a charge at me. Satan can't get me. Nobody can get me. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. I am free as I can be. I am a bond slave. I am absolutely committed to Christ in every way, in all things, in all my behavior, in my life, in the things that I prioritize. I put Christ first in absolutely everything. I'm so free. I'm a slave. And that apparent paradox doesn't bother Paul at all. And in fact, those of us who know Christ, who are committed to Christ, know that that paradox exists in our lives. We're happy to sing, free from the law, oh, happy condition. We're happy that we are free, free from judgment, free from the wrath of God. We are free in Christ. We don't even judge our own selves if we follow Paul's kind of thinking. All things are lawful. Not everything is edifying, but everything's lawful to me. I am absolutely free, and I am completely, utterly sold out, and I am slave to Christ. I can't escape him, I can't get away from him, and I am fully, utterly committed to him. Whatever he requires of me, he absolutely receives from me to the best of my ability because I am the freest of slaves. Isn't that great language? What do we get, five words? Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called... As an apostle, he puts that right at the very beginning because the rules for apostleship included that you were with Christ during his earthly ministry and that you had seen the resurrected Lord. Those were the rules for apostleship, that you were sent by Jesus. That's all the word apostle means. It just means sent one. Anybody can have a sent one. I can send Kellen out to my car to... I don't know. Go get something. for. There's change in the middle. Run out and get that. Well, he's my sent one at that point. I've told him to go out and get it. And that's essentially all the word apostle means. The reason that the apostles of Christ have distinction is because of who it is that sent them. They are sent ones, but they are sent by the Lord of glory. And they're sent on a mission to do the work of their master. And so Paul has to defend time and time again that he can be considered an apostle because he was sent by Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and he had seen the risen Lord. He argues that he is an apostle, a sent one, and that he was separated, that he was set apart for the gospel of God. Whereas he considered himself sanctified he considered himself wholly given to the law which is why he could say that he was a hebrew of the hebrews before the law he was guiltless and studied the feet of gamaliel he had given himself utterly and entirely to the religion of the jews but now he says i've been set apart from all that set apart from my own life set apart from everything that used to be me in fact he writes that those things that he used to count gain, he now considered absolute rubbish. And he uses a much worse word than that. That the things that used to be valuable to him now have no value whatsoever because he's gained Christ. And so he says that he's been set apart by God for the gospel of God. Now that phrase is even more interesting Not the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I've been set apart for the gospel of God. This is the gospel that came directly from Yahweh. Now, this is earth shattering to the Jews he's writing to. If he had said, I'm here to preach the good news of Jesus Christ or of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, then they, being thoroughgoing Jews, could say, yeah, but that has nothing to do with us. That's some sect. That's not anything that we're interested in. But he now equates the gospel of Jesus Christ with the gospel of God. This is the good news that God himself, that Yahweh himself has sent. 
Now his Jewish readers have to deal with that. They have to deal with the fact that he's saying, this good news that I preach, that I was set apart to, even though I am slave to Jesus Christ, as I preach Jesus Christ, I am doing it because that is the good news that God himself presents. That one is the one who sent me to preach his good news, which is about his son. You get the layers of that? Which, he's not done, which, which good news, he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, when he says the word Holy Scriptures, what's he talking about? He's not talking about the New Testament. He's, he's writing it at the time. He's talking about what we would consider the Old Testament. He's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. And now he's challenging his Jewish readers and saying, God promised beforehand, even as far back as Abraham, that all the families of the earth were going to be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Here is that promised seed. And now all the families of the earth are being blessed, Jew or Gentile, through the promised seed. And that has been predicted, that has been prophesied by all your historic prophets in your own scripture. If you go back and search the scripture, you will find that everything I am telling you, everything I am teaching you, comes directly from the scripture. I'm not making up anything new, he's saying. I'm actually just telling you what your own scriptures already say. Your own scriptures point forward to Christ. And that good news about Christ was written down in your scripture by your prophets long before Christ came here. I'm not telling you anything unique. I am confirming to you that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has brought about his Christ. And I am slave to that. So let's see how far we can get into the sentence here. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. The covenant that was made with David included that David was always going to have a son who was going to sit on his throne and rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. And so as soon as he says that Jesus was the Messiah who was born out of the genealogy of David, he's saying that one, Jesus of Nazareth, satisfies the Davidic covenant. That's promised in your Old Testament. You're going to go all the way back to Samuel and find that. So again, I'm not saying anything new to you. I'm saying what your own scripture has always said concerning his son, Jesus who was born a descendant of David, according to fleshly lineage, who, Jesus, was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Man, he just keeps hitting them with difficult things to grasp. Now he's saying, this Jesus, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem have killed, but he's alive again. And I've seen him alive. That's why I'm his apostle. That's why I'm sold out to him utterly and completely. And the resurrection of the dead, the fact that he is resurrected, is the declaration from God that everything else concerning him in the scripture is satisfied and fulfilled in him. If he got up again, he's everything he said he was. If he didn't get up, he's nothing. But he's resurrected. He's alive again. And because he's been resurrected, that's the sure and certain proof that he is the Son of God. Therefore, he is the Messiah. Therefore, he is the satisfaction of the Davidic covenant. Therefore, he is the King of Israel. Therefore, he is the one who has all the power and all the authority in heaven and hell and earth. He's the sovereign. He was declared to be the son of God with power, that's that sovereignty part, with dunamis, by the resurrection of the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
If that had been me, I'd have put a period right there. But oh no, Paul's not done. This, by the way, if you think my introductions are long, <laughs> this is Paul's introduction to the letter. He's still saying hi. He's still saying, how you guys doing? It's me, Paul. I'm writing you this letter. And then he's just laying out all this theology to explain to them why he's going to write the next 16 chapters. Let's start at the beginning. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. That's the pneuma hagiosmos. That's the Holy Spirit. According to the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, would have been the inspiring spirit who caused the prophets to write all the stuff that's in your scripture about Christ. So he was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit who wrote all that about him. And he is Jesus Christ our Lord through whom, he keeps going, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. He's not done, but we need to pull that verse apart. Through whom? Through Christ. We, Paul talking of himself, he's using the royal we there. We received grace and apostleship. When he says the word grace, he's talking about something he knows intimately. Again, don't forget the perspective he's coming from. Don't forget his history. Don't forget that he was bound by the law. Much more so than any of us have ever been or can ever conceive of. He was absolutely bound by the law of Moses, and he was teaching it, and he was committed to it. And then Christ tells him that he can be justified by faith from all the things that the law could never justify him from. Well, when he says grace, he knows grace. He knows what the word grace means, much more so than even we do. We think of it theoretically. We say, yeah, I'm saved by grace, but that's kind of all we've ever known. But Paul intimately knew legalism. Paul intimately knew do the law or get punished. He knew the history of Israel. He knew how Israel had come short of the law and how God had dispersed them and how God had punished them over and over again because of their lack of obedience to the law. He understood the animal sacrifices. He understood the nonstop attempt to be justified before God. He understood the flow of blood. He understood that they had to do it constantly and continually because there was never an end to, a, to sin, and so there was never a full satisfaction for their sin. He understood all that. It's part and parcel of the Jewish religion. And so when he says grace, he means all of that that I used to be so committed to, that the Israelites used to be so committed to, all that stuff that we used to do in the temple, all that stuff that we used to be so enamored with among the priests and the Levites, all that stuff that we tried so hard to make ourselves justified before God, none of it was ever accomplished, but we can be justified by faith. Well, that's, that's just grace. That's just kindness from God. That's just unmerited favor from God. So when he says the word grace, remember that he was going out to kill Christians when Jesus found him. He wasn't looking for Christ. He wasn't a seeker. He wasn't going out looking for Jesus. Jesus found him. And if Jesus had left him to his own devices, he would have continued persecuting the church and died in his sin and been judged eternally. But Christ came to him, called him by name, not only converted him, but then taught him so that he could go out and teach the gospel to people. That's grace. Because he didn't do anything to earn that. He didn't do anything other than killing and persecuting 
What did he ever do that would make Jesus say, yeah, I got to have him? When he says the word grace, think of it from his perspective, everything that he's been through, everything that he knows, everything that he knows about the Old Testament and the religion and God's wrath and God's punishment, and then the, the attempts, the nonstop attempts to be justified, and then Jesus saying you can be justified by faith. That's what he means by grace, topped off by the fact that he, the church persecutor, was called by Jesus to be an apostle. It'd be one thing for Paul just to be saved. But now he says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles so that you can go out and preach my word, make converts, bring sheep, bring the elect to faith in Christ. The persecutor of the church is the one that God chose through Christ to be, to this very day, the leading expositor of God's grace to Gentiles like us. That's grace and apostleship. So he said, through whom, through Jesus Christ, we received grace and apostleship. To bring about the obedience of faith. Again, a fascinating turn of a phrase. I I love the way Paul uses language. I like that every once in a while he just makes up words, which I I really enjoy because I do that. Although one time, uh, Elder Ward used a word, and I forget what it was. It was something like righteousified or something. And someone said to him, "Uh, you just made that word up. And he said, all words are made up. So so I like the way Paul sometimes makes these compound Greek words and how he combines ideas like free slave and that kind of thing. But here he has talked about the obedience of faith because faith has to do with grace and faith has to do with being justified through your belief, through your commitment to Christ, without obedience to the law, without having to do stuff, without boom, 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 boom. There's none of that going on in grace through faith. And yet Paul would talk about being obedient to the faith because, get this right, in Pauline thinking, in biblical thinking, in true Christianity, faith does have an obedience component Faith, true faith, genuine faith that has obedience to it. Not just mental assent, not just obedience in terms of aligning our minds with what the Bible says, not just that obedience, but then Paul is going to get into mortifying the deeds of the flesh, living in such a way that you're clearly different from the world. And he's going to contrast the world And believers time and time again, because the true, genuine Christian faith has built into it an obedience. Not, like I said, not just physical obedience, but also then that mental obedience to, yes, stick to what the faith is. Stick to what the text says. Don't say things that are beyond what the prophets and apostles have handed down to you. And yet say everything that they've said to you. And that's all obedience to the faith. So he speaks of faith as having an obedience built into it to bring about the reason that he's preaching to the Gentiles is to bring about this obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for Christ's namesake. Verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So he's writing to the church at Rome, and he's saying, you've come to faith in Christ. You're showing obedience to the faith. Why is that? Why are you being obedient to the faith and others aren't? Well, it's because you've been called. It's because you've been called by someone to the faith. You've been called by someone to Jesus Christ. And that calling, he's going to continue to refer to throughout this book because it is the very effectual calling of God to individuals to enlighten them, to renew their minds so that they are obedient to faith in Jesus Christ. So again, it all starts, Pauline theology all starts with God. 
It all starts with what God decided to do, what God determined to be done before the foundation of the world. And he recognizes that it's God's absolute sovereignty that's going to bring about these changes, but that's not the way he's going to teach it. He doesn't start by teaching your predestined since before the foundation of the world. He starts by teaching you're a sinner. And that's the way we start the teaching. We say to people, you're a depraved sinner, and you're under the wrath of God. And if you die in that state without faith in Jesus Christ, God is going to judge you, and you're begging him to do it. In your attempts at self-justification, in your attempts at being good enough that God will accept you on the basis of your own works, you are begging God to judge you, and you're sinful, and God is going to cast you into outer darkness forever if you stand before him in that state. I tell people, you're sinners, and they enjoy that so much. Have you ever tried that? Try it out sometime. Ask people, are you sinful? Are you a sinner? Most people will say, I'm not, not that bad. I mean, yeah, occasionally I might do some wrong things, you know. I lied the other day to my sister, or I stole a pack of gum at the 7-Eleven, you know. They think in terms of deeds. They think in terms of, I did something good and I did something bad, and I'm hoping my good outweighs my bad, and when I get in front of St. Peter, he'll put my good deeds and bad deeds in a scale, and if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'm in. That's a very Catholic notion. But that's not the way the Bible describes it. The Bible starts with, you are desperately depraved and wicked and sinful and an enemy of God and an enemy of everything that is holy and righteous. That's where Paul begins. Now, to the Jews, they're naturally going to say, no, wait a minute, we're Abraham's seed. So we're not that bad. We're not as bad as those Gentiles. Those Gentiles, now, they're bad. I mean, they don't even have the scripture. They don't even have the prophets. They don't even have the promises or covenants. Those Gentiles, they got nothing. So Paul's going to spend the next two chapters leveling the playing field and proving that Jew or Gentile, if you're human, you're sinful. You're all the seed of Adam. And his sin is imputed to you, and you're sinful. How did I get there? Ah, because he said you were called in that sinful condition, in that sinful state, you were called to Jesus Christ. That's why you came to Christ. Not because of anything in you, not because you figured him out, not because I talked you into it. You came to Christ because you were called by God effectually to be given to his son, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You are the called. You're not just randomly called. You are the specific people who he called to give to his son. Verse 7, and then we're done with the opening sentence. To all who are beloved of God in Rome. Oh, that's even better. Why were you called by God? Why were you enlightened? Why were you brought to Jesus Christ? Because God loved you. You are the beloved of God if, in fact, God called you and gave you to his son. To all who are the beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. There's that word again, hagios, that word holy, that word hagiosmos is sanctified. I mean, it's that same root word. You've been set apart the same way that Paul's been set apart for apostleship to the Gentiles. You've been set apart. You've been made separate from this world. You've been made holy so that you're only used for God's exclusive purposes and you're not to be used for any of the coarse things of this world, the common things of this world. You're separated unto God. <clears throat> to all those who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you. He's saying, hi, finally. Finally, it's, oh, hey, greetings after all that. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. There, 
I finished one sentence this morning. Grace to you and peace. The only way you're ever going to get peace, every time I see this phrase, grace and peace, it's the way I sign all my letters, grace and peace. I love that couplet of words, grace and peace. The only way that you're going to ever have peace with God is if God is gracious to you. There's no amount of work on your part that's ever going to bring you peace with God. You're always going to be at enmity with God because your sin has separated you from God. He is absolutely righteous and holy, and you are absolutely not. And the only way there's going to be the ceasing of the againstness that's between you and God, the only way that peace is going to happen is if he is gracious to you because you can't do anything for him. He has to do it for you. So I like that he always says grace and peace. Not peace and grace. That would put it backwards. We have grace from God and therefore we have peace with God. And I would just say this morning that I hope that's what each of you experiences as we go through this book. Is that you come to recognize the full satisfaction that Christ accomplished. And because of his full satisfaction, because of him fully taking on the wrath of God in your place, that you can actually have peace with God, and that that's just a work of absolute grace, 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 grace. Amen. All right? Thus endeth the introduction. (laughs) Next week, we might do something a little special. If we do, we're not going to put it on the Internet. Now, I'm saying this with the microphone on, so the Internet folks don't write to me next week and say, hey, where's this week's lesson? If we do what I'm plotting, then next week, it's just us. All right? Any questions about what you've heard this morning? Yes, ma'am. On uh, chapter 7, when it says, To all who are enrolled, beloved of God, called to be saints, Mm -hmm. to be is italicized. Does that mean it was added in? By the translators, right. Because the idea of being called to be something or being just called saints. Called saints. Different ideas. Yeah. So I wasn't sure that was. Called, and again, plug that word in, called hagios. You could just as easily say called holy. And that again is another one of those big, big contrasts because here Paul had been spending his whole life thinking that he was achieving some level of holiness and sanctification through the works of the law and never accomplished it. It took the calling of God to declare them holy. Yes, sir. In in verse 5 where it talks about all the Gentiles, some people take that and apply it to it as They have a choice to choose Christ. But verse 6 defines the all when it says the call. Yeah. So, so, that is why context is so important. Yeah. Yeah. It would be easy to take that word all out of context Mm -hmm. and say, see, right there, Paul is a universalist. But as soon as you read the whole first sentence... It's very clear that Paul is talking about particular people, the saints, the hagias, the separated, the called. As soon as he uses that language, it's clear he's not talking about everybody. The difficulty in teaching a book like this is you can kind of see the speed that we're going to work with. But the difficulty is it's actually a letter that's meant to be read to the church top to bottom, beginning to end. It's meant to just stand up in front of our congregation and say, here's a letter from Paul, let's read it. But we're going to have to go through and kind of figure out all the meanings and stuff because we don't have the same historic background that the church in the first century had. That's a good point you made because I forgot that he was writing to the church in the world think that he's writing to them. To a degree he is in as much as we can get our theology straight from it. But the stuff that we misunderstand in it, I think, is because of the cultural differences and the time differences. Like I said at men's group on Tuesday night, this is the third time tonight I've mentioned men's group. You must be doing something significant. I said the, the reason that we sometimes fail to understand, especially chapters 9, 10, and 11, is just because we don't have the 
historic background. We don't have the setting. We don't have the mindset that those people had 2,000 years ago in, in Rome and in the Middle East. They knew their recent history, and they knew the Jewish history, and they would read it through those eyes. But 2,000 years later, the 21st century Gentile church doesn't have that, and that's why for years and years I've been laboring to give us some amount of that. Yes, sir, you had your hand up. Yeah, I was going to say, I think what it refers to the Gentiles in verse 5, Paul is more depicting the scope of his particular ministry than speaking about obedience of faith. He's saying, this is my job, this is what I was called to do by grace. Right. To go to all All Gentiles. Yeah, all the nations. I agree. Anything else? We're good? Okay, I hope you get everything you want for Christmas. Don't get me anything big. Never mind. I do hope that you all enjoy your family time and your meals and your sharing and your gift giving. I hope you all just have a grand time. We're not here this Wednesday because that is Christmas Day. And so, no, it's the day after Christmas Day, isn't it? Well, we're still not here. (laughs) Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.